I'm really excited to be here today with Ryan again. We have got a great discussion going already by email, and I've just been learning so much, and I'm really pumped to have this conversation. And uh, what we want to talk about is uh, kind of the thing that I've been you know, sticking in here and there with my videos about the elements and principles of art and how that relates to the creation of the universe and everything else. But also there's this wonderful book, which I'm going to put on the screen right now, um, <clears throat> called The Mind of the Maker by Dorothy Sayers. It was written back in, what, Ryan, 1950, something like that? I just looked it up. I think it's 1941. 1941 she she just nailed it she is so on target and uh, <clears throat> we have both been reading this book I had picked it up a couple of years ago I'm not sure how you stumbled on it Ryan but I had picked it up a couple of years ago and just read part of it and was so struck by the power of it but I got involved with a lot of other things and haven't gotten back to it but when you reminded me of it I picked it up again and I'm just like wow <laughs> It would be fun to just go through it page by page um, in a series and, and just talk about the ideas that pop up in there because they fit into everything that we've been talking about in this little corner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I picked it up this past week after our conversation, actually, because at, at one point you brought up her Trinity of Creativity thing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. And then I was intrigued by that. And so I went and looked it up and, you know, I thought it was funny, like, OK, this is the the, the mystery novelist. Yeah. person like she wrote something that's like interesting that's kind of weird and so I went and <laughs> bought it and was just blown away because it she's very succinct like her her writing reminds me of C.S. Lewis or Chesterton or something where she's getting to the point and and she's just getting right to the core of the thing that actually matters you know she starts off the the first chapter of the book is her talking about um <clears throat> let me pull it up You know, she's talking about the, the the meaning of the word law and how we use that word in, in different ways. She's kind of making a difference between like law as like a a rule that is enforced by an authority that may or may not be good or, you know, it may or may not be arbitrary versus law as something that's sort of just a principle baked into reality. You know, she says, like, there's a difference between saying if you hold your finger in the fire, you'll get burned. Versus saying, if you whistle, I will beat you because the noise gets on my nerves. The God of the Christians is too often looked upon as an old gentleman of irritable nerves who beats people for whistling. Right. And so I think, it, you know, it just it, it reminded me so much of like. You know, this is this is what Peterson I mean, Peterson does this at the end of the Logos at Ephesus, right? He, he goes through kind of the Genesis stories and some Exodus stories showing how these are not just arbitrary random stories they are descriptions of reality in some manner you know and as as i was reading this book by by dorothy sayers i started thinking about like you know i grew up in in like fundamentalism right and it was in uh, as a kid it always it, it was scary to me you know because the preacher was up there literally like screaming about hell and judgment and like oh, wow. if you if you do these things you will go to hell and it never made sense to me, like, okay, why are those things in that list? You know, like I, I have a vivid memory of uh, 
I was probably five years old or something, and I had just learned that there was a, a gesture you could make with your hand that was offensive to people. And so I went off in a room by myself and I made the gesture. And then immediately I felt this, you know, I, I was reminded of the preacher at church. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to hell now. God is going to zap me, you know? And so it's like that, that was my mentality. It was this very, you know, the same thing Dorothy's describing this book. You know, if you whistle, I'll beat you. You know, if you stick your middle finger up, I'm going to send you to hell, that kind of thing. And, you know, it wasn't just with religion. I mean, like in school, like in, I think it was third grade, I was, you know, in art class and I was shown a, a picture of a shovel leaning against a wall. And I was told, well, this was put in a museum as art. So what is art? You know, art is whatever you want it to be. And, you know, I was watching episodes of of The Twilight Zone, and there's that famous one where the guy wakes up from, I think, plastic surgery or something, and he looks like a normal, you know, attractive man, but everyone else is these, these horrible, disfigured people. And but they're they're the normal ones, and they look at him, and he looks disfigured to them. And and it it ends by saying, "Beauty is in the eye of the beholder," right? And so it's it's like I was swimming in this atmosphere of like there are rules, and you but but they are arbitrary. There's nothing that really means anything. There's nothing that really matters, you know. Um. Anyway, so fast forward some years, I think that's probably the core of the thing that that led me to Peterson and being so intrigued by his Genesis lectures, you know, because he didn't art articulate it in quite the same terms as what Sayers is doing. But it, it seems like he was getting at the same type of thing, saying, you know, our 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 social hierarchies are built into the biology of the lobster like it's not just <laughs> we didn't just make it all up you know there is something baked into the way that we are that is it, it is these processes that are operating you know um and as i've been thinking about it this week i kind of realized like okay this this is a common thread that runs through a lot of the stuff i've I've tended to gravitate to over the years, you know, uh, at, at the past few years when I've been reading a lot of philosophy and listening to stuff in this little corner, it's like, I couldn't ever tell people like, why is it that I'm drawn to this stuff? It seemed kind of random, but, you know, I sent you some of my thoughts over email and and I, I came up with this, these, these lists that are kind of opposites in my head, you know, like on, on the left side, I have, you know, well, do quantity. You, do you have, do you have the chart where if I gave you the share screen possibility, could you pop that chart up? Um, not easily. Sorry. Oh, um, okay. I'm on, I'm two different computers here. Okay. Okay. But basically like quantity versus quality, quantity, like all this measurable stuff, you know, we, we quantitative things and axioms and logic and this kind of like, um, you know, like Paul likes to talk about bounded set thinking, you know, making everything explicit and rational and focusing on propositional knowledge, all that kind of stuff and materialism. And then the stuff that's been popping up in my head in kind of contrast to that is like, you know, instead of quantity, like quality, and instead of just axioms and logic, actually like experiencing things, you know, instead of this whole literal versus non-literal thing, talking about symbolism, you know, talking about what's implicit, what's beneath our rationality, right? And it, it seems to map in some way to 
what Sayers is doing with um, the kind of law as arbitrary rule versus law as something baked into reality. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, I, I just found the, um, I just found your chart. And so I'm going to show it so that people can see the, the list. So you have quantity versus quality and, right. um, and then axioms, which would be uh, Ravaki's propositional truth, right? Right, right. And then um, healthy would be the experience side, which would really ties together procedural, perspectival, and participatory, mm -hmm. right? Seems to me that axioms would be if you try to just um, shove a, a square into a circle with one thing, a propositional truth that that's all you have versus the experience of all these other kinds of knowing. Then you've got literal and symbolism on the other side. And um, in Verveke just did a really interesting conversation with seekers of unity, where he talks about symbolism in a really interesting way. Then you had bounded set thinking versus centered set thinking. And I, I've heard Paul use that terminology, but I'm not sure what it is. Could you could you just go over that? Yeah. And, and I, I debated whether to even include this one, because some of these things, I don't know if they're necessarily belong in these categories, but like bounded set thinking as like inside versus outside. Mm -hmm. um, whereas centered set thinking is more like you have a goal, you have a vision and you're moving towards it. Right. And so as it might be used in, in uh, religious conversations, bounded set thinking would be like, this is sin and this is not sin. And at some point you cross a line and, oh, well, it wasn't sin, but all of a sudden now it's sin. Versus centered set thinking would be more like, well, here's the ideal and here's where we are. And there's movement towards the ideal and away from, there's maybe movement that's kind of this direction um gradient versus binary maybe is a, is a kind of way to think about it yeah well I, another way that that fits into the, the the making of art is um in art we talk about open and closed compositions and a closed composition would be one in which if you have a vase of flowers the whole vase is in the center of the canvas and so you can see the whole thing but an open composition would be one that that extends the size of the vase of flowers out to the edges of the painting. So part of the, um, well, I'll, I'll show you really quick. Um, I brought up some photos of things, of some paintings that I've done in the past, and I don't know if I can get to one quickly. Well, we'll just take this one. I have other dragonflies that I'll, I will show you eventually, but you see how part of the wing is clipped off. Your imagination has to make up the rest of that wing. You can see it. I, I can't see it. I'm still seeing the. Oh. The email. Oh, okay. Well, now I wonder how that works with screen sharing. So I'll try again. Share a screen. Oh, there we go. Okay. Now you can see it. Yep. Right. Okay. Yes. So. So here are some, some dragonflies are in here. You can see the whole dragonfly. You still have to use some imagination because of the way I paint. But, but part of this, this big dragonfly is 
flying off the edge here. So this would be right. an example of a kind of open composition. I have other examples. I just can't get at them right now because, because my screen is all cluttered up with all this stuff I wanted to show you guys. Ah, so bad. Anyway, now you get to see how disorganized I am. That's all good. Yeah, well, so anyway, you get the idea. Um, here's another one. You can see this? No? Uh, I'm still seeing the same. I'm seeing the other one. Even. Okay, obviously there's some limitation to the way that I know how to do share screen. And so I'm going to have to get better at this. I guess you have to share each one. Uh, there we go. So you can see on this, um, the way that I compose this dragonfly is one of the wings goes way off to the left here, but you can't see that. You can only see the one that goes off to the right. You can see the wing here. It's a little hard to imagine this as a dragonfly because this one was like number 19 in a series of 25 <laughs> dragonflies. Right. Um, so I kept seeing deeper and deeper into the concept and coming up with um, maybe more visionary kind of paintings. Right. And so this was one of the more visionary ones. But if you follow... The line along here, you can definitely see the top of the wing. And then this line that runs through here, kind of like a wave, that's the bottom of the right. wing. And then this is the, the background with the body of the dragonfly coming down. But this would be an example of an open composition because you your, your imagination has to make up what's left out. Okay. So that would be more of what I would call like centered set thinking where bounded set thinking would be more like a closed composition. And another way I was thinking about that was, um, another way I was thinking about that was, um, like sometimes we imagine that things that have boundaries like a, a human cell or a cell of anything, it has an mm -hmm. edge to it. And so you could kind of imagine that maybe the boundary came first. I've heard a lot of, I've actually heard a lot of scientists talk about, you know, this idea that somehow lipids make up a, make up a perimeter by accident. And then that somehow cells begin to form inside that perimeter. So you could think that way. That would be what I would consider bounded set thinking. You have a, you have a boundary and then everything forms inside that boundary. But another way to think of it, as though the boundary is what holds the thing together. But mm. another way to think of it is that there is some center that is actually having uh, an impact on all of the parts and holding the parts together, whatever that center is. And that's the way my mind tends to work about these things. Mm. Like the, the universe has some sort of a center that's holding the whole thing together. Every planet has some sort of a center that's holding the whole thing together. Um, all the galaxies have a center that's holding the whole thing together. You know, you could think of that in terms of gravity for some things, but when you get down to the smaller things like, um, like an atom, you know, all those things are, are revolving around the nucleus and uh, right. the center has some sort of force or power or something that's holding the thing together. And 
centered set thinking would be like that because there's a goal that's pulling you forward. But at the same time, that goal is coming from you. So you've set this goal, you're moving towards the goal. So the goal is having some power over you, but at the same time, the goal came from you. So you're being held in some ways, you're being held together by this center. So um, because it's very mysterious why anything is a whole thing, right? Like, why is an apple an apple? Right. And not just a bunch of parts. Yeah. So um, I really like that chart that you made up because I felt like it just opened a lot of opportunities for um, visualizing different different ideas about how that, you know, what you were saying that Dorothy Sayers is talking about the difference between these two kinds of laws, the the law that's baked into the universe and right. the law that's just an arbitrary attachment. Another example that she gave that I thought was extremely pertinent was this idea that you could pass a law that cooks are only allowed to make an omelet when they're wearing a top hat, which, you know, is, is an arbitrary law. And right. you could punish people for not making their omelets with a top hat on. But there's another law that you could you could say omelets cannot be made unless you break eggs. So that's an inevitability. Without the right. breaking of eggs, there can be no omelets. And um, no matter what your utopian vision is, <laughs> omelets cannot be made without the breaking of eggs. And we cannot avoid the consequences that come from our decisions. So in one sense, I mean, like now when I read the scriptures and it talks about punishment, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, yeah, because that sort of action or behavior inevitably leads to consequences that mm -hmm. will feel like a punishment because we so often separate our action from the consequences by a long period of time and we don't see the connection between the two. Mm -hmm. But there's an inevitable connection between our actions and the natural consequences that fall out from them, because, as she says, there is a real world that we right. are subject to. Right. Yeah. And and so, I mean, just to to use the you know divine punishment as an example of, of all this, like I think of C.S. Lewis's um, The Great Divorce, which, you know, he was writing kind of in the same era as Sayers, where. You know, it's this vision of hell or purgatory or whatever as as movement from the center. You know, there's little anecdotes about like in this in this purgatory, Napoleon has has moved as far away as he could, millions of miles away. You know, it's people kind of repelling each other because they are not willing to be brought to the center, not being willing to be brought to Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. And. You know, and it's like, I, I feel conflicted over some of this because, you know, like I, the way I characterize it in that graph is sick versus healthy. Like, I think because I'm so, um, I, I find it so distasteful to be so fixated on the quantitative binary black and white things that I, I kind of want to reject that. But it's like, that is clearly in scripture, right? You know, we see, I mean, there, there are sheep and goats, there is a left hand and a right hand, right? And at the same time, you do have the center, you know, Christ bringing everything together. And there are degrees of separation or closeness, you know. 
Um, and it's like, so there, so clearly there is some relationship between, yeah, the boundaries and the center, you know, and, and maybe I don't, I don't know. I, I start to lose the thread when I, when I get this too abstract, but maybe this is sort of the, the agent and arena thing. Like there, there is stuff that's happening and there's a context in which it's happening. You know, there's, there's boundaries around which things can happen. Um, I don't know. And I, I think of, um, is, is one of the things you're struggling with the way that everything is nested in everything? <laughs> because I don't know a, what I'm struggling with. Because there's an inside and an outside, but then when you get to the outside, that outside is inside of something else. And then that, <laughs> inside, you know, and then, so, right. So, um, now the way that you were interpreting the great divorce is, somewhat different than the the uh, the image i got from that is more like and i can't remember what c.s lewis says specifically but the picture i always carry with me is that the reason people live so far from each other is that they they just can't get along with each other right because they have no love and they they are unwilling to give up their own selfishness their own arrogance their own greed whatever it might be whatever they're holding on tight to they're unwilling to give that up um and therefore not because of any punishment that's been imposed from mm. the outside but because of their natural tendency to want to hold on to their own hubris their own sin you know what whatever you want to how, however you want to call it then they, they can't stand living next to each other because everybody irritates them. They can't make any sort of relationship or connection. So they just keep moving out and out and out. So the margins keep growing, but there's no center. Mm. Because isn't love the center? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to me. Well, so never really thought may, about maybe it. if we think of it as more like a cone than as a, you know, we always need pictures. Right. If you think of it as a circle, strictly as a circle, let's say that, that the hell that he's envisioning is like a galaxy. So people mm -hmm. just keep moving further and further out into the, the arms of the spiral because there's no center. But the center is up here and you know, like there's a light cone from the center going out. So everybody's stuck down here in this spiral, but there is the option to move up towards the light, to move up towards the center, which is at the top of the cone. And that's that's when they when they go on holiday. Mm. They go to the bus downtown and they get on the bus and they go on holiday to heaven. Because that's the center. Right. So then, and I mean, this is a genuine question, but like within that, then what, like, what is love? What, what does that mean? Wow. Um. Maybe I can show a little video clip here. 
John Verveke is talking to this guy whose name escapes me. Zevi. Um, he's talking to, it doesn't even say the guy's name. It, the guy's website is called Seekers of Unity. Um, but I think his name is Zevi something. He's really, he's just brilliant. He's a Hasidic Jew. And he teaches a lot of stuff about the Kabbalah, but I thought what he said here was very pertinent. Okay. And just, you know, I'm still saying. Right. The email. Oh, I have to go back. Sorry. I got to go back again. Yeah, I am. So sorry. I'm glad you told me. Here we go. The critique on your work is that whenever I speak of mysticism, I speak. Of I'm sorry. I got to go back just a little bit here and i think i want to respond with a, with a critique on your work is that whenever i speak of mysticism i speak of love because i think love is what emerges necessarily and logically and, and morally from mysticism and and the only time i heard you speak of love in your series was was very philosophical and very abstract and and not and not love that that motivates action and and, and good pay and, and okay well okay um um well a, a, a couple things about that well, so later, John John responds to him. The guy talks very fast, so I don't know if you caught what he was saying. Um, but he was, he's was he been talking a lot about mystics like Meister Eckhart, Christian mystics. Mm -hmm. And so then he just said, now, love. Um, what the mystics are talking about is always love. But John, one criticism that I have of your work is that whenever you talk about love, it's a very abstract ideal. And mm -hmm. so it's really hard to get a handle on it. It's not the kind of love that motivates action. Right. Right. And so, so Seekers of Unity, his idea is that love is something that motivates action. And, you know, I mean, just the things that we tell our children when they're growing up, you know. Right. Um, that when you go out and love somebody else, you're, you're being Jesus with skin on you're um, you're, you're touching people's lives with Jesus hands and feet because the, the actions that we take that are, that are encouraging and building up other people, those are actions of love. And oftentimes maybe we don't even want to take those actions and maybe our heart isn't even really in the right place. Right. I, I had a situation last week where I had to come and ask my husband for prayer because someone that I don't like very much um, asked me to um, do something for them that would take a long time of having to be with them for a rather long period of time. And right. um, they needed the help. Absolutely. I, I could see that. And for some reason they asked me and so i felt like i needed to do it but i couldn't do it in the flesh so i had to go to my husband and say can you please pray for me that i can have jesus love for this person and i can act out of that love and um do this helpful thing for them even though my heart wasn't in it at all and and the lord made it a really nice experience <laughs> so um when we talk about love, it's really his love working through us because we we can only love because he first loved us. That's what the scripture tells us. So all love emanates from God. 
and then moves through in us and through us out to other people. That's That would be my description of it. Okay. Not a feeling, it's an action. Right. What's on my mind right now is, you know, I, I spent... I spent some time a couple of years ago um, looking into like the Orthodox church and going to some classes and sometimes attending Vespers and that sort of thing. And one, one of the things I was really intrigued by there was um, it, at least the way it was framed from the people I was talking to and listening to was that, you know, God's love and God's punishment is more like what you're describing. Like, um, you know, the, the fires of hell and the light of Christ are the same thing that are experienced in two polar different ways based on people's reception of them or their willingness to love or, mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. And that, Christ is going to bring all things to him and that will be the kingdom. And some people will experience that as suffering because they will not be willing to be brought in the presence of love. Right. Um, and that was a really intriguing idea to me. Um, again, because it's, it's not arbitrary. It is that, that is a, that is a very simple, coherent, idea principle that's that makes sense of the whole thing in, mm -hmm. in, in a way you mm -hmm. know in in contrast to this um you know this vision of god i was i was brought up with you know he's he's kind of dangling you over a fire and like if i if i'm not pleased with you you know um I don't know. I feel like I'm about to get myself in trouble if I if I oh, no, no, talk I, too I, much I, about this. Well, I totally understand it, and I'll say it so you won't get yourself in trouble. <laughs> uh, when I was a new Christian, I had the absolutely blessed fortune of, of falling into a church that had been a very fundamentalist church with lots of rules, had a whole list of rules. They were all written out, you know what you couldn't mm -hmm. do, and you couldn't be a Sunday school teacher if you did it, or that, or the other thing, and there was no dancing, no card playing, all that kind of stuff. But but a new pastor had come who had been a missionary to the Navajo Indians for 20 years in Arizona. And he had come as a pastor and he was working diligently with the elders to help them move from that orientation to an orientation of grace. And he was a wonderful teacher and not only a wonderful teacher, but just a, um, a beautiful vision of what love in action is. Because when he would go out and um, get to know the farmers in the area, he didn't go and make them come in and sit at the table and have a piece of pie with him while he expounded to them from the scriptures. He went out and got under the tractor with them <laughs> and helped them repair the tractor or or got down in their basements and helped them do some remodeling. Or, I mean, he was just that kind of a, he was even criticized by some people that he wasn't spending 40 hours a week in his den preparing sermons. <laughs> but, but he never needed to because when he got up to give a sermon, the message was built into the man. He had experiences from the week 
of of having received God's power and love in real situations and and he could use those in his teaching and it was just a wonderful place to grow in Christ mm-hmm. um and my my ex-husband who had become a Christian just shortly after I did he said that when he had been in um another kind of church that I won't name <laughs> because I don't want to get in trouble. He always had, but not a, not a Protestant church. He always had this feeling of, of being dangled by a spider's web, you know, by uh-huh. a, a string as thin as a spider's web being dangled over the fires of hell. And that if he made one wrong move, he was going to, the string was going to get cut. And then when he came into this church and heard the gospel, it was just transforming for him. Uh-huh. And so for, a number of years he was really transformed by that and was um so wonderful at articulating that to others and leading others to christ and mm. and, and offering them that truth and and then he got as we know <laughs> he he ran off the rails and gave up his faith altogether and and um right but but I understand exactly what you're saying, because there is this and, and what you're saying about the, the Orthodox Church, I, I see the same thing myself whenever I read the scriptures. But it may be because I have been kind of puttering around the edges of this Orthodox thing for a while. So I probably picked up some of those thoughts, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I totally think I think there's one more reason why the. Um, the the fire can be both the fire of love and the fire of hell and that is that you know that verse that says um i forget what the first part is but it's some kind of like doing kindnesses for another because in so doing you will heap coals on their head burning coals mm-hmm. on their head so our kindness that we extend to somebody can either be received by them you know, in the same way it says right. in, in uh, Proverbs, uh, when you speak to a fool, they will not take what you say. When you when you speak to a wise person, they will listen to your criticism and they will grow from it. But if you, right. if you speak a loving criticism to a fool, they will not listen to you. Right. Right. Or, or even I was just thinking about like the in Proverbs, like the what is it? The wounds of a friend can be trusted. Yes. Right. And so there's that, there's that, there's that stabbing that can lead to healing like surgery versus the stabbing that leads to death, like a, like a murder. Right. And and they are in some sense, the same thing, but they are, they lead to different results and they are experienced very differently. Right. Right. And, you know, there's another place that says, um, oh, Lord, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a story behind that, I think, because one pastor at one time taught us that um, sometimes, you know, if a lamb is trapped in a crevice or something, the, the shepherd might have to break the bone of the lamb to get it out of the crevice. Which is similar to like doing surgery or something. Um, right. So if you don't trust the breaker of your bones, then you're going to 
feel that as a punishment. But if you trust the breaker of your bones, you're going to know that that was, there was a good intent there, right? Right. Mm. And, uh, but and it I seems that issue about of... the fire, the coals on the head, part of the reason I think that it's coals on the head is that some people just don't feel worthy, don't feel deserving of a loving act. And because of that, they put up so many walls to prevent anything from getting through that when you do something good for them, they can completely misinterpret it. Oh, you're doing that because you want something from me or you've got an agenda or, or something like that. Mm. So sometimes the same good action can be misinterpreted, right? The, the image that just popped in my head, I, I got a dog a few weeks ago and he's Atticus. from the shelter. <laughs> Atticus. Yes. Yeah. I named him Atticus. Um, and he's from the shelter and he, he, the first few days, I mean, everything was terrifying to him. You know, I would, I would literally just set his food bowl down and he would come over to me and cower and pee in a, in a kind of submissive way, you know? Um, but as he's grown to trust me, all of that kind of thing is, is changing. You know, he's, he's, he's willing to go in his crate now and not whine and whimper and he's willing to take his food and, you know, he gets in the car and he still doesn't like being jolted around, but he's not like cowering down, you know, because he, he's experienced it and he knows what it is and he trusts that it's going to be a consistent experience each time, you know? Um, I don't know. It's, it's been, an, <laughs> you know, I'm not a father or anything and I'm not, you know, he's not a son, but it's like, it, it, it does seem like an interesting experience in terms of like, I'm seeing myself in relation to God through this. It's like, okay, clearly there's all kinds of stuff in my life that has been good ultimately for me. But at the time I thought, this is awful. I hate this. Why me? Poor me, you know? And, you know, and I think of the different answers to that question I would have received in different Christian contexts. You know, some of my, you know, I'm good friends with some very kind of staunch fundamentalist Calvinist types who would, who their, their answer is God does what he wants and suck it up almost in those words, you know? And it's like, yes, God does what he wants, but also that's still just kind of reinforcing the arbitrary rules paradigm. You're just saying like, well, you know, God's the authority, so he gets to be arbitrary if he wants to be arbitrary, right? But I think a more compelling vision for me is, yes, God does what he wants, but <laughs> there is a, there is an ultimate end to all this, which is the kingdom of God, which is the the loving, beautiful, you know, thing that we're all longing for and it requires purification it requires yeah love it requires like if if we're all going to be brought together in christ you know we've got to be willing and able to be brought together in christ like that's not an arbitrary thing it's not him with a checklist saying hmm you did xyz you're out it's 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 the nature of the thing it, you know it, it just it's it's just baked into what is happening? I don't, I don't have words for it. You know what I mean? Well, when you say um, that God does what he wants, yes, because what he wants is 
love. What he wants is to love us. What he wants is to have a relationship with us because he created us so that we could experience his love and so that we could experience relationship with him. So that's always what he wants. So if we look at every rule through that lens, but here, let me get you an example, which came to my mind when you were talking about Atticus, because I completely understand. Yeah. We have a dog who came to us very damaged because it had been um, abandoned and tied to a pole. And the people that found it, found it tied to a pole. I don't know how long she had been tied to that pole, but, and all her hair had been chopped off funny. And uh, at first it looked like she had been abused in some way. And so she was also very fearful when she came to us, but, but more than that, it made me think about my daughter when she was about two, three years old, she was just kind of becoming aware of when maybe her consciousness was just kind of arising in her. <clears throat> and she, we were having a party one night and she had done something naughty. I, I don't even remember what it was. And she she came up to me and she wouldn't look me in the eye. Mm. Right? I wasn't angry with her. I was trying to get her um, attention so that I could give her loving eye contact because I know how that important that is in relationship with a child. Mm just to use your eye contact to express love. So I was, I was trying to pour this loving eye contact into her. She would not look me in the eye. <laughs> and uh, that's the way we are. When we, when we make a choice that we know is against, I think even oftentimes when it's not like something that's against God's laws, but it's, in opposition to what is the best thing for us and for the other people around us, we inherently know that we've made that choice. And when we've made that choice, if we haven't really um, nurtured, haven't allowed God to nurture our relationship with him, then we're not going to make eye contact with him. That's not him turning away from me. That's me turning away from him. And, and that's why we feel alone and hopeless and desperate because we're not allowing him to pour that loving eye contact into us. But if we trust him in that moment and say, yes, I did something really bad and it's going, I might even bear the consequences for it down the road. And maybe there's nothing you can even do about those consequences, but I want you to purify me and change me and mold me and make me into your image. The only way that can happen is if we look at him because it's mm. in looking at him that we see his image and he pours his image into us more and more. You know how it says in, I think it's James, that when you look into the perfect mirror, the perfect mirror of the law. One of your other questions that you wrote in to me beforehand was, um, was this difference between rule and principle the same as the difference between law and gospel? And I thought that was a really insightful move. And it made me think about, yes, because rules are sort of like a schoolhouse for us in the same way that in the scripture, it says that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ because the law exposes to me my own inability to keep the law. But the gospel exposes to me God's power to change me so that I I can 
live out the gospel and not be bound by laws. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that a pianist has to learn the scales or they'll never be able to play Rachmaninoff, um, right. learning the scales is, those are the rules. You have to learn the scales. It also happens to be it happens to be a rule that's somebody just telling you you have to do this, but it's also a rule that is a natural has a natural consequence if you don't follow the rule. But then the principle is um, manifested once you've internalized the rules, and then you can exhibit mastery and um, musicality and passion and spirituality in the music that you're playing but you, but you can't get to that point without the principle without the rules first so the the law builds in built into in the old testament like the the ten commandments is the law there's a lot of other law in the old testament that was building into the people um a set of rules that would give them some boundaries because they were being built up as a people who were kind of cut off from the rest of the world. They were, they were a unique people. They were prophet, mm -hmm. priest, and, and king, you know. Um, and so they needed this set of rules to keep them in this united body, them against the world. <laughs> but right. then came the time when God said, now I want you to, I want you to be a light. To the gentiles and quite often they didn't want to be a light to the gentiles because the gentiles were the bad guys right so right. so then there's this whole rest of the old testament where that that kind of thing is going on and then the gospel breaks down that wall between jew and gentile between black and white between i don't even remember all the things you know male and female right the gospel breaks down that wall and now, now there's the perfect freedom that comes from looking intently into the law, but that's a law with a capital L. That's Christ himself because he's the fulfillment of the law. And then it seems to be that like this, I mean, this, at least in, in the circles I've run in, in my life, it's it's become this kind of dialectic between like you know some people advocate the love and the freedom and 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 whatever and then there's other people saying no but you need boundaries right and that's kind of where we're at culturally with conversations around like sexuality for example it's like you know everyone is kind of envisioning it as uh yeah a bunch of arbitrary rules and then and then questioning why it's arbitrary rules and then you know some some fundamentalist types are just saying well god gets to make those rules so whatever and then i think some people are trying to say no these are not arbitrary rules these are principles you know i you know paul vanderclay has a really good <laughs> 3 hour video on this it's it's called something like um why marriage equality means the end of mainline protestantism or something like that 
Um, but this seems to be one of his kind of central points is, you know, the rules around sexuality are not arbitrary. They are baked into reality in the same way that you can't make an omelet without eggs. You mm -hmm. know, it's like you cannot have a stable um, social structure between men and women without certain elements, you know. Well, and, you, um, you can't have the continuation of the race either. Right. A race of human. And, and this, right, yeah. And and this is one of one of Peterson's main points, too, in a lot of his work, right? Mm-hmm. You know, again, it's like... It, there there are hierarchies that that are these are not arbitrary rules these are not just people asserting power arbitrarily and unfairly it is the, you know yeah you can't have structure emerge without um or i don't know i don't yeah i don't know how to put it into words exactly well i i think what happens is Years ago, I used to be a consultant um, for an intercultural consulting company. And part of my job was to train executives and and uh, marketing people who were maybe from Japan coming to the United States to learn American business style or were moving from the U.S. to Japan to learn Japanese business style so that they could interact appropriately ineffectively um but um now remind me what we were talking about because this is pertinent but i forgot the main thread here because so many other things popped into my head um oh about arbitrary rules um yeah. in that consulting work um Wow, I can't remember how I lost that thread. It has something to do with the fact that there is an actual world that we're dealing with and that these rules have actual consequences. I'm sorry, I lost it. It's a good point. <laughs> yeah. But is it something about the difference between cultures and how like people want to just kind of hand wave all that away as like, well, that's just how the Americans do it or that's just how the French do it or whatever um but there yeah. actually probably is i mean that is certainly true but but it was a, it was a, it was a different point entirely okay. um because because there are cultural differences that probably add to the you know like the old borg thing uh you will be added your distinctiveness will be added to the collective <laughs> because there are, we are all distinctive and and there's mm -hmm. something beautiful about that and and I guess chat GPT would be the Borg, right? <laughs> Your distinctiveness will be added to the collective. <laughs> um, but you, before that, you were talking about this idea that, um, oh, it's right at the edge of my Sexuality as, as arbitrary rules versus something that is, inherent in reality and yeah know. yes absolutely now i don't remember why that made me think about working as a consultant oh because we i would have to go into companies and i would have to analyze the culture of the company 
and okay. see what were the the cultural components of what made that company distinctive so that I could teach my um, my students or my advisees how to interact mm -hmm. in that company and um, often found very, very interesting things about corporate culture. And if, if you don't understand the culture you're going into, you're not going to be successful in that culture because you don't fit the parameters at all. And they're not going to understand you. You know, if you want to have communication going on, then you have to understand what that cultural milieu is that you're going into. But that was not the point that I wanted to make. So and it evaporated somewhere in the ether. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, I I guess I guess where my mind is at right now, I'm I'm thinking about people who people leaving the church, you know, deconstruction, all that stuff. Um, for myself, you know, I've I've gone through waves with that sort of thing and watched other people. And it's, a lot of it seems to revolve around this, you know, growing up with this notion that, um, you know, Christianity was one arbitrary set of things among a whole plethora of potential sets of arbitrary things. And I just happened to grow up in this one. And now that I'm kind of picking it apart, I'm seeing that it's arbitrary and there's really nothing behind it, except for however you want to frame it. You know, it's, it's power, it's tradition, it's whatever. Um, and I think uh, to an extent what, you know, kept me in the door was sensing that, no, there is something about Christ, you know, what he said, what he taught, what he did, the vision he cast for the world, and then all the tradition and history that's grown out of that, that, that feels not arbitrary, you know? Um, I think, you know, I, I've, I've heard Jonathan Pajot say something like Christianity is inevitable or the Christian story is inevitable. And I, I think what he's communicating is, is something like this, like that the, the world is headed in a direction and that direction is not just some arbitrary something. It is, you know, it is, and it is going to happen, you know, and it's not just the people who happen to be in power. Well, isn't, I mean, that's one of the things that Dorothy Sayers was talking about, and I'm, I'm having a hard time finding the quote, but she was talking about, um, Maybe this is it here. The necessary condition for assessing the value of creeds is that we should fully understand that they claim to be not idealistic fancies, not arbitrary codes, not abstractions irrelevant to human life and thought, but rather statements of fact about the universe as we know it. Any witness, however small, to the rationality of a creed assists us to an intelligent apprehension of what it is intended to mean and enables us to decide whether it is or is not, as it sets out to be a witness of universal truth. So we have really everything at hand to tell us whether or not what we believe is 
consonant with reality. And so I think this is the thing about cultures too. Maybe this, maybe this is uh, one thing I could say from my experience in intercultural consulting is that many of the consultants that I worked with tended to have this idea that all culture is neutral. One culture is just as good as any other culture. So you right. shouldn't ever make any criticisms of another culture or point out to anybody, you know, what you're doing is counterproductive or any of those things. One culture is just as good as any other culture. Right. Now, let's take that out to as far as it can go, okay? As far as it can go, you could say, well, then that would be true also of corporate cultures. One corporate culture is just as good as any other. Right. I don't think anybody would want to agree with that. You know? right. Because some corporate cultures are filled with, uh, you know, like Madoff's corporate culture, you know, is filled with greed and, and animosity and stepping on people and uh, Enron, you know, all of it. You know, some corp corporations have a corporate culture that's very negative. And some have a corporate culture that's very positive. Right. Um, in human cultures, there are cultures in the world where their highest value is to eat people. Right. And not only that, but the even beyond that, the higher culture beyond their cannibalism is that to betray a friend is the highest value in the culture. So mm. the guy gets the most points who can make a friend from another tribe so that that friend will come and visit and then they eat him. That okay. guy gets the most points. That's kind of like, I would say maybe like the mafia, right? But, but it's a human culture. So you can't really say that all cultures are equal. Some of them produce flourishing and others do not. So you can judge actions and behavior by what the ultimate consequence would be if it's just allowed to run the course, right? Just look at it over time. What's going to happen if we all do that? And then when you see there are inevitable consequences to some actions that just drive you down into the ground and there are inevitable consequences from other actions that, that, that allow the entire body of people to as you said be purified grow together love one another um right yeah i think i think of uh i think in in his maps of meaning lectures peterson talks about how you know there's theoretically infinitely many sets of rules you could create to try to create games but most of those games the vast majority of those would not be playable you know it's only a a, a really a small set of you know types of rules that fit together to create a, a playable game right and really that's what i mean i think that's essentially what we're talking about right it's like and so then like what is i don't i don't know this this might be too vague of a question but like what is the game you know what is the ultimate end or the ultimate purpose or you know what what are we I mean, I can say as a Christian, like like we were talking about earlier, I mean, the ultimate goal is all things brought together in Christ and the kingdom of God is established. It's brought from heaven to earth, right? Um, but as, as a culture right now, at least in, you know, 
in the West or the United States or whatever, it, it seems that we, I, I don't know what our goal is or if I, I don't know how we would ever even collectively have a goal again. Like it, we seem to be in a really perilous position where not only do we not have a goal or a vision, I don't think, it, I don't know if it's possible for us to have one at this point. Um, I feel that way sometimes. Uh, it says in the Proverbs, without a vision, the people perish. And that's not a rule, but that's an inevitable consequence, right? Right. And right. and we are certainly at that point where we have no vision. We have no, we have no corporate vision as a nation. Mm. We have no corporate mission statement as a nation. Um, we have no corporate mission statement in the West. The world is at, at a very perilous place, and it would be easy to feel hopeless about that. But once in a while, I listen to Andrew Claven. He's way too political for me, but but he had written this beautiful book, um, The Truth and Beauty. Let me see if I can grab it. I can't lay my hand on it right now, but it's a it's a lovely book. And uh, he's talking about the kind of renewal of art during the Romantic era <clears throat> and how it lines up so much with what it means to walk with Christ. And mm. it's a beautiful book. And he's he's a man who became a Christian after many years of atheism and hostility towards Christ and um but he has a, a video out where he's talking about some of these things and, and what that what looks like a hopeless situation right now, he feels the only way to turn it around is to renew the culture. And the only way to renew the culture is to bring um, the ancient wisdom back to the young, which is, you know, basically that was the argument that Wolfgang Smith was making in, in all the videos that I did with him that we have to go back to the ancient wisdom because that's where the truth resides. And um, that means education in the humanities. Like a good example of that right now is this Ralston College that Jordan Peterson has become a chancellor for. Right. Or even Peterson Academy, which is gonna spring off next year, or there's a handful of other institutions. Hillsdale College has been doing this since its inception 150 years ago. Um, but most of the universities were co-opted by all the federal money coming in after, I think Title IX was one of the ways that federal money got in and gave federal control over the curriculum. And then also a lot of the, uh, the student loan money that was coming into the universities, if, if students were paying their fees with student with federal money, then the federal government said, we have some control over your curriculum. So over time, the federal department of education and the federal curriculum has really co-opted the universities. And, and also just because the cultural revolution in the sixties, all the students didn't want Western civilization anymore. They didn't want to study the ancients. They didn't want to study rhetoric and logic and all of those things. Mm. So, but 
but the path back has to start with good solid education and that education has to be grounded not in a whole bunch of data sets right but it has to be grounded in some mm. deep principles and that's really what you get from the ancient thinkers they were thinking about deep principles how the world operates mm. and here's another well, you know, and rules and principles that is that rules will will only get you so far but principles will allow for this beautiful flexible creativity and a thought that i had this morning was that you know the human body has i don't know how many cells i think i remember hearing something like a trillion cells but let's just say it's many hundreds of billions of cells um every one of those cells has all the information in it that's needed to clone another me when they get when they get the technology going but there's only one kind of cell in me that can create a completely unique human being when it joins up with a unique cell in a, in a, in a man mm. and that unique cell is got is something like the principle of creativity so that principle can create something unique and absolutely beautiful where the rules can just create more of itself the rules can create many 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 people doing exactly the same thing but a principle can create something that is new interesting which is you know like like we were talking about last time this i think one of your critiques of like ai art right is like it seems to be just generating the same type of thing what's well, generating a lot of different things but there's something about them that all looks the same right i i can't really put my finger on it without showing you why don't you talk a little bit and i'm going to i'm going to go to twitter and i'm going to find some of these things that people have posted <laughs> sure because, um, well i was i was just going to say um You know, Dorothy Sayers, one of the things she talks about in the book is how um, she sees, or I'll, I'll just quote it, as the volume of the world's knowledge increases, we tend more and more to confine ourselves each to his special sphere of interest and to the specialized metaphor belonging to it. The analytic bias of the last three centuries has immensely encouraged this tendency, and it is now very difficult for the artist to speak the language of the theologian or the scientist, the language of either. The attempt must be made, and there are signs everywhere that the human mind is once more beginning to move towards a synthesis of experience. And I thought that last phrase was fascinating. I mean, especially considering she was writing this in, in the 40s, right? I mean, I mean, whatever she was seeing back then is what I feel like I'm seeing today. You know, I feel like that's kind of what the Peterson movement in some sense is, or, you know, whatever you want to call this. Um, it, it's 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 almost like yeah we're all feeling the burnout of like there's too much knowledge there's too much information and we've become too too narrowly focused on little bits of it that we we can no longer grip the world very well you know which in some senses Verveke's project right like let's let's collect all the wisdom and let's go let's take a journey through all of it so we can understand it and start gripping it properly you know let's 
zoom out in some sense and and have a more holistic view of things. And you see that you see that principle kind of popping up in different areas, you know, this revival of, um, you, you know, a, a more holistic view of health and, and, and medicine and the human body and all kinds of stuff. People no longer seeing the mind as a separate thing and the body as a separate thing, but seeing them all as unified. Um, Anyway, that's that's a different topic. But did you find well, no, that, that I I had I, well the thing about her book is you highlight almost everything, and then pretty soon the whole book is highlights. I right. had highlighted the same thing, and one of the thoughts that I had when I highlighted it was um, going back to Stephen Wolfram when he's talking about his new idea of physics. One of the problems that we come into when we're trying to understand the world is that we are in the world. That's the same thing that she's talking about because we are observers in the world. We can't see the, you know, like the God's eye view of the world. We can't see the whole right. thing. We can't, um, we can't even, you know, one of Peterson's lectures, he talked one time about, let's just say that you just wanted to paint this floor tile here. You just wanted to paint a picture of this floor tile. If you want to get every detail that's in that floor tile, it's going to take you a year. And even then you're not going to capture all the details because those details could even go down to the molecular level. And you, you, you haven't even gotten close, even on this one little spot right. in this room. But if you're looking at the whole room, there's no way we can grasp the whole of anything. But I think that is one thing that distinguishes the artist. And in her book, she acknowledges that when she uses the word artist she's using it the same way jesus is using the word father in this sense not that the artist is like the father but that when jesus uses the word father he is talking about the ultimate father the father who is only good the father whose every choice mm -hmm. is made from good and love and truth and beauty well so in the same way when dorothy sayers is talking about the artist She's not talking about just any old person who's making something that might be called art, like the guy who put the shovel up against the wall in the museum. She's talking about the most elevated image that we could get of what it is to be an artist. So, so that in those brief moments when an artist rises to somehow that moment of, um, I guess John Verveke would call it flow, but that moment when you somehow feel connected with the idea that's coming into your mind in a way that you could represent that idea, either musically or in a drama or in a, mm -hmm. in a painting that, that, um, that the artist somehow has this outside view of the world. And the artist gets a glimpse of what the whole must be. Mm. And then they attempt to represent that whole in their work. Now, some artists will only try to represent all the details in the floor tile, right? But other artists will attempt to represent that whole. So the idea mm. comes, um, I think Wolfgang Smith had quoted, maybe it was Mozart, who said that symphonies would come into his head complete in a moment, in an instant, the symphony would be there. But it would take him a long time to unpack it and orchestrate it and figure out which instruments were playing which parts and then write out the parts. But the symphony was there in the initial idea. Mm -hmm. So 
that's this capacity to see the whole instead of feeling like you're if you, if you were just a part of the whole you would just be the trumpet in the middle of the symphony but but as an artist he could experience the whole in a moment so mm. the whole you know when um she's talking about the creative idea and the energy and the power the idea is timeless so the, the idea is in a moment there's no no time represented with the idea but then the energy is the creative working of the idea out in time and then the power is the creative um, interpretation of the work by the listener or the viewer or the reader so that there is an attempt at creating this relationship between the the maker and the recipient mm. and um and both of those are something that works out over time but the idea itself is timeless so she, that's why she represents the idea as the father and the right energy as the sun and the the uh, power as the the power of communication through relationship as the holy spirit uh. so like you know I, I struggle with some of this because i'm like not an artist and so I'm, I'm trying to grasp it but like you know like i'm trying to write something right now and i've never really done a serious writing project but i'm trying to do like the first time in my life, a serious writing project. And it, it feels exactly like you're describing, like it is in my head and it is, it is in some sense, it is already there in, in a way that I'm like, oh, if I could just get it out, you know? And, and so when I sit down to work on it, it really feels like I'm taking this undifferentiated mass of thing and I'm, I'm extracting parts out of it. I, I, I'm not, I'm not pulling it from the bottom. I'm extracting it from the top or, mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And and it feels like that's what this whole process is going to be. Just taking little bits of it and trying to make it explicit. And and yeah, it does feel like, like it, it's, it's like I'm trying to communicate it in a way to where people will get connected to whatever is in my head. I want them to have the same feeling experience the same experience that I have when I'm engaging with this thing. And, and yeah, that's, that would be the, the power, you know, someone asked on your last video about the, the idea and the energy and the power, like is the power transjective in the same way, I guess that Verveke talks about transjective. And I, I, and honestly, I don't even entirely know what transjective means. I just know that like, we have this subjective objective, you know, paradigm. And I think some people are trying to argue for something that's like, no, it's not just subjective and objective. It's there is a relationship between subject and object that is its own thing or something. I, I don't really get it, but. Yeah. Well, I don't know what Verveke actually means with transjective, but whenever he's talking about it, that's the picture I get is this relationality that seems to be at the base of everything. Okay. Um, you know, there are the, the idea that I have about the principles of art is that there are the elements and principles of art, but then there is also the sort of fundamentals of the process of art that are also kind of at the base of everything. 
the, one of the fundamentals of the process of art is this idea that limitation or constraint produces creativity. Um, and this may be true for you. Here's just a small example. You have this idea in your head and you're trying to write. If you had 24 hours a day to write and you weren't working and you could just write anytime you wanted to, odds are you wouldn't write anything. <laughs> this is why so many would-be writers never get anywhere because they, you know, they decide, yeah. I'm not going to work. I'm just going to write. But then you have right. no limitations, no boundaries. And but when when your time is constrained and you only have a certain amount of time and you have this passion to get this idea out, then within that constraint of that time, you can be much more creative. Mm. Um, there are other boundaries that, that I, when I was doing art, I was imposing on myself and those boundaries really jumpstarted my creativity. So I got a, a ter terrific uh, understanding of that principle, but those kinds of things that are just fundamental in the universe um, when Peterson talks about um, Genesis 1, and he's talking about, you know, order coming out of chaos, this, he uh, went back and either he talked to some Jewish scholar or he was quoting some Jewish scholar who said that was making this observation that what did God lack? God didn't lack anything except limitation. And so in order to create the universe, he had to limit himself so that then the, the universe could be opened outward mm. into, into creation. Now that's not a biblical idea. That's some, some Jewish right. scholars thinking about it, but but there's something very powerful in that idea. Um, this right. idea that God drew back in order to make a space because, because God fills everything. So in right. order to make a space sort of in a, in a sense, he has to make himself smaller or draw back or something so that the space is there for the creation. I mean, these are all very abstract thoughts, but right. Um, and it makes sense though. And, and, and it fits in with what we were talking about at the beginning, I think where, you know, I'm thinking back to my my kind of early fundamentalist years where everything felt very arbitrary. I would read things like, yeah, Christ, you know, I, I can't even think of the words right now. But I mean, you know, Christ, Christ humbles himself. You know, he limits himself. He enters into creation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of just envisioned that in, in a very sort of like... I don't know. Like he could have done it any other way, you know, same, same as with the cross and the death and the resurrection. Like it, it, I grew up thinking about that in very arbitrary terms. And now I'm starting to think of it in more principled terms where it's like, no, in order for anything to change, it has to die to what it was and resurrect to something new. I mean, Christ even talks about this pretty explicitly, right? He says, you know, mm -hmm. unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And it seems like he's he's talking about this. He's like, it is it is necessary principally that a thing die in order for it to produce. You know, and I mean, obviously he's talking about himself, but he's also in a fractal way talking about everything, right? 
Yes. I mean, so many examples come to mind. The butter, the uh, caterpillar becoming a butterfly. The caterpillar doesn't just die when it gets inside the chrysalis. It it completely dissolves into just a mass mm. of goo. There's no body shape left. There's no brain left. There's nothing left. Just undifferentiated goo inside that chrysalis. And then a butterfly forms out of that. And what's even really? weirder is that the butterfly, if the caterpillar was trained to do certain things, the butterfly will be able to do those same things. So the oh, memory is retained by the butterfly. But that's a perfect I don't even picture. know how to think about that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's a perfect picture of, of how y- you have to die in order to live. And, and I I think God just wrote those things into the way the universe works so that we could ponder them. I mean, a tree, like the biggest trees in the world, the sequoias and, and the redwoods, their seeds will not germinate unless they've gone through a fire. So yes, we denigrate the idea of forest fires, but it's the it's the burning of the seed that allows those the husk to come off and the seed to to germinate in the ground. And then that tiny little seed becomes something that can live for 2000 years and become 24 feet in diameter. And I used to wonder where did all that stuff come from in a tree? And so I did some research and discovered that most of a tree's mass is built from air. It takes in water, of course, through the roots, and it takes in some nutrients from the roots. But the carbon in the air is what builds the tree, and the sunlight is the energy that powers that building. So um, when you really start meditating on a tree and everything there is about trees, you just learn all sorts of things about yourself and how the universe works and everything else. Well, you know, I was really struck by, um, you know, when I read Matthew Peugeot's book, The Language of Creation, I mean, he he uses the tree. I think he he even says something like, you know, reality is dentrocentric. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is tree structured. Mm-hmm. And the first time I read that, I thought, OK, that's kind of as a stretch. Like, you, it seems like you just kind of picked something. But as I read his book and thought about it over the next two years or whatever, I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like I really see what he's getting at. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, especially with the patterns he focuses on, I mean, heaven and earth and the union. I mean, that is the tree, the roots grow down, the tree grows up. And then, you know, both grow in this hierarchical way where you have the one that splits off and it splits off and it splits off. And that's, that's family trees. That's, that's all hierarchies, all differentiation, and it's working in both directions, you know? And, and then you think about the tree is, I mean, the tree of life and the cross, you know, and there's so much like, there's just so much in all this. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lifetime's worth of stuff to meditate on. And, um, well, and for so many years, I've been trying to figure out how to describe what, when I always talk about how, even when we're born, we're born with this capacity, this potential to gather information and make sense of it. Us, the sense-making capacity is already built into us. And, and 
the way I picture it is like some kind of a matrix or something, some sort of structure that's in us that has lots of little feelers out that have like Velcro on the end. So whenever mm. an idea comes along, it gets picked up. But um, and then then we grow more and more. That So that structure gets more and more solidified and built out with more and more capacity. And I was trying to figure out how to illustrate that. And then today I was driving along and I saw this tree that was barren of all its leaves. And, and it's just branches and branching and branching and branching and branching. And then I thought, well, when the leaves come on, every one of those leaves is out there gathering in the sunlight and the air and the water and all the leaves have a purpose to feed the branches and the branches are you know, feeding the trees. So the tree is growing larger and then the tree is growing more branches. And there's this kind of reiterating happening all the time. And that's, that's who we are as people. That's happening inside of us all the time. And, and it's like this hierarchy inside of us that's fractalized and reaching out and continually reaching out. So we have this opportunity not only to input data, but knowledge and information and wisdom so that we become more and more whole as, as we go on. And um, yeah, there's so much in a tree. And every tree, yeah. every kind of tree has a unique shape that's only for that kind of tree. And every kind of tree has a unique wood grain. So if you slice the tree longwise, like make boards out of it, you can tell a mahogany from a walnut just by looking at the grain. I mean, it's just weird. And, and a tree guy once told me that if you're gonna trim trees yourself, never, never cut off the crown of the tree. The crown is the leading shoot in the middle. Because if you cut all the information that the tree has about what shape to grow is in the crown. Hmm. You cut the crown off, the tree will just grow weird water shoots that go straight up. You've probably seen trees like that that have, they're just not oh. a beautiful shape anymore. There's a lot of them in California because gardeners tend to come in and just mold the top of the tree off. Or if a tree's in the way of a power line, they'll just hack the top of the tree off. And then after that, the tree just grows these weird branches that go straight up and and there's no beauty to the tree anymore and it doesn't well, and that's exactly where we are culturally right yes. it's like we've cut the head and there's no more coherent unified structure that's serving the main purpose it's all okay now we've got a bunch of little sub communities and subcultures and people vying for power and they're all just kind of growing up right but not serving the main you know thing anymore I'll try to get a picture of one of these trees for you and send it to you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> because be it would be a perfect illustration of that idea. Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant brilliant insight, Ryan. And, and you know, another thing I'm thinking about with all this is um the parable of the sower. You know, I think I think it was from from Jonathan Paggio that I got the idea that maybe that parable is actually kind of a meta parable, like a parable about parables or a parable about um the word itself, you know, he said, because he, he, Christ explicitly says, if you can't understand this, how can you understand all the other parables, which is a really weird thing to say. Right. But, but what the parable is, is, you know, you have the seed, right. And there's different things that can happen because the, you know, the healthy growth is the downward growth, the heaven and the earth being unified. Right. If you have neither, the bird just takes it up. Right. And so it, it doesn't take root and it doesn't produce anything. If it just takes root, but there's no heavenly upward growth, then it's it's just, you know, 
what whatever that is, you know, if it tries to grow up, but it can't take root, then it just kind of withers away. Right. And so it's almost like, yeah, there, the, the tree is a, is an image of what is necessary for growth and propagation, right? There has to be a, a rootedness and there has to be upward growth production you know um and if those things aren't present then you know you don't get you don't get fruit you don't get propagation you don't get what it's supposed to be you know here's a here's a thing i learned about trees too that i think fits right in here you can help me anyway you know some of these tall trees how does the water from the from the soil get to the top of the tree to feed the leaves up there. The way that it happens is that as the tree is growing, it um, some of the cells are differentiating into these little cells that are almost like short straws. And mm. so if you can imagine a bunch of these cells aligning themselves in a row upwards, and building columns of these little short straws aligning in in columns upwards, almost like beads going upwards. And then there's, there's both a, a capillary action so that when the water gets into this little tubule going up, the capillary action is going to draw it up to the leaf. But the capillary action is instigated by evaporation in the leaf. So as the leaf is getting some evaporation from the sunlight, then the capillary action gets instituted. And so the water starts to flow up the tree. Hmm. Now, it's such an extraordinary design, Oops. right? <laughs> and trees are older than we are. They were here before right. we were, long before we were. And yet this amazing capacity that's built into a tree to feed itself, you know, so you need the living water and, and you need to build in the capacity to move that living water up through your system to your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit. We are fed by water. We are fed by, you know, light. We are fed by air. All of those things are just as much a part of our spiritual growth and upbringing as, as they are for a tree or any other kind of a plant. So, yeah, much to contemplate. We've been going for an hour and 45 minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. We got through one page. <laughs> so I highly recommend this book to people. I was thinking as I was reading it again, this book ought to be required reading at every one of these universities that's trying to remake the culture. Uh -huh. And I think it ought to be required reading for every scientist who's really trying to understand how the world works because. Well, you know what? One, one last thing before I let you go, you might find really interesting. Um, oh, sorry. Give me a second. I was looking into the book a bit. And I stumbled across this thing that I'm now remembering, which is um, I had to read this essay for my software engineering degree in college called the mythical man month. And the essay is about how, you know, we tend to think that um, 
you know, we can just throw more people at a software project and it'll just go proportionally faster. Mm-hmm. And the author's trying to argue it, it doesn't work that way. And it's not because people are lazy or anything. It's it's just a, a principle baked into reality that like you can't have a, it, like it just can't work, you know? And he actually quotes Dorothy Sayers' book, The Mind of the Maker, in, in this software essay that I had to read in college. He says, Dorothy Sayers, in her excellent book, The Mind of the Maker, divides creative activity into three stages, the idea, the implementation, and the interaction. A book then, or a computer, or a program comes into existence First, as an ideal construct built outside time and space, but complete in the mind of the author. It is realized in time and space by pen, ink, and paper, or by wire, silicon, and ferrite. The creation is complete when someone reads the book, uses the computer, or runs the program, thereby interacting with the mind of the maker. The description, which Sayers uses to illuminate not only human creative activity, but also the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, will help us in our present task. And then the author goes on to to d- describe what I was talking about. And so I just found it fascinating that he was, you know, connecting these things for computer science, you know, to make a point about how, <laughs> how computer programs are, you know, it, it's just so anyway. Well, you know, when she talks about that Trinity thing, she's talking about, well, I think she's quoting somebody else, but they're talking about how it shows up in everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I've thought about that before in terms of energy matter and, and uh, time or, you know, things like that. But, but she was using it even like the seeing something is made up of these three components because there is the the um the thing that you're seeing the thing the seen thing mm-hmm. and then there's the action of seeing so there's the seeing itself and then there's the the um, vehicle of the seeing which is the seer so the person who is seeing the action of the seeing and then the thing that's being seen. And that breaks down just as nicely with the, the known Uh knowing and the knower. Right. And it breaks down like with this idea, the implementation, the interaction, the Mm -hmm. idea would be the known. And then the implementation would be the knowing. And then the interaction would be, and the implementation would be the knower and then the interaction would be the knowing. So all of those things all break down into these trinities that are inevitable mm. in everything. And uh, it's really fun. I mean, I think some people see it, but what, what puzzles me is that some people like um, Dr. Michael Levin, who's just so brilliant and he's very much a Neoplatonist so he understands the one and the many, and he understands probably even this idea of threeness, and, and he uses it a lot in his science, but he's a complete materialist. He would not call himself a reductionist because he does think there is some sort of oneness that it's hard to get a grip on. And uh, he does think there is such a thing as teleology, but in his mind, it's the same kind of teleology that comes out of some of the things that are going on in computer science today where um, bots can have goals, but the, but the goal is not imposed from the outside, but emerges from. So um, there are people who, who see this stuff and still don't connect it with 
with faith right. or with the inevitability of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Which gives us lots more to talk about. <laughs> it does. Because I wanted to talk to you about chat GPT and AI and all that stuff. And I did, I'm just real quick before we go, I'm going to show what I mean by okay. the, uh, the AI thing. So I'm going to share a screen. So Michael Levin is really fascinated by mid journey. So he's uh, putting in some prompts. So, one of the things he prompted it was with the Vitruvian Mothman. You know, the Vitruvian okay. Man is the the drawing that uh, Da Vinci made. Mm -hmm. So he put in Vitruvian Mothman, and this is what he got. Now these are really interesting. <laughs> totally just done by by Mid Journey, and the line work in the background is fascinating, and how it makes these sort of human sort of like the face does isn't anything. It's just kind of weird. Here's right. another one from the Vitruvian Mothman. But can you see by looking at them, they all have the same feel that they've been done by the same artist. It's yeah. different stuff, but you can feel the the structure and the the uh, the texture and the you know some places there's smoothness and some places there's a little bit of roughness. But in general, it's all pretty smooth. There's, there's just a look about it. Um, mm. And here's a, another one that he he did. For example, he put in, if mid-journey had a body. And it creates this thing. <laughs> this is really scary. <laughs> but but it's this, all the same style. It's just, yeah. um, if, I, if I was in a museum and I saw all these things hanging next to each other, I would say they're the same artist. Hmm. That is interesting. So we have, have, have you, have you seen images where it's like someone saying, you know, do this in the style of this artist? Yes. But what even are your thoughts then on it, that? What does it produce? Um, I wonder if he did some of those things. He's, got, he's been messing around with mid journey for a long time. He's, he's put in some really interesting prompts so many ads on here now that you can't get through. Here's academic research in the style of Bosch. But there you go. See, it's yes, maybe it's like Hieronymus Bosch. But if you looked at Bosch, it wouldn't be this smooth. So so there's just something about it that is all the same. But this has been just great. We're going to have to say bye-bye and uh, we'll talk again soon i hope yeah all right so thank you for all this time and for just letting me pick your brain and giving me an yeah, opportunity to talk too i've talked a lot here more than usual so yeah this is great appreciate it have a great evening all right see you okay yeah bye-bye